Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, where we'll be continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. Each week here at FBC, we take a portion of Scripture and try to just understand what it says, especially what it would have meant to the original audience. Once we understand what it means, we can more readily apply it to our lives. But we do this because we believe that God has spoken to us by His Word, that it is Spirit-filled, that it is without error in all that it intends to communicate, and that it is sufficient for our lives. Because it's God's Word, we want to be faithful in understanding it, so we want to make it the highest authority here at FBC as well. So we've been walking through, section by section, the Gospel of Mark, which is the earliest account of the life of Jesus. Uh, There's four of those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that all tell of Jesus' life here on earth. And if you've been with us for the first three chapters of Mark's Gospel, uh, it seems like Jesus' ministry has been a smashing success. What do I mean by that? Well, he's casting out demons left and right, it seems. He's healing sicknesses. He's forgiving sins and restoring crippled bodies. And people are coming in droves from all over the place, even places that would really have no concern about a Jewish Messiah coming to earth. But a closer examination of his ministry shows that while people are coming in great numbers, Jesus also faces great opposition. Most notably, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious authorities of the day, uh, the ones who are supposed to be the most devout, seem to be his biggest critics. Those closest to him, his blood relatives, think that he's insane. They think he's out of his mind, and they try to withdraw him from the crowd, I assume to put him into hiding so that he wouldn't embarrass himself or bring shame on the family. And then the crowds themselves, when we look closely, we recognize that as much as Jesus prioritizes his teaching ministry and preaching, they seem to be coming more to be healed physically. They seem to care more about his miraculous deeds than the content of his message. Well, as it turns out, only a very small number of people seem to really be on the inside. Jesus calls a few from the large crowds, the 12 disciples, and then he himself implies in the end of chapter 3, he says that those who do the will of the Father are my sisters and mothers and brothers, implying that even those sitting immediately around him, it's just a smaller section of that group as he looks around in the crowded house. Well, that's how chapter 3 ended. And based on what we've seen, you might be wondering, why in the world did so many people misunderstand Jesus? Why did those closest to him not see him for who he really is? Why did those who witnessed the very miracles of the Son of God and heard the very teachings from his mouth oppose him? Yeah, maybe you've asked questions like that today in your own experience. Why do so few people trust in Jesus? How come I don't see more people put their faith in Christ? Why does the number of Christians seem so few in relation to the number of non-Christians in the world? And you might even be tempted to wonder if it's foolish to believe in Jesus, because so many don't. 
You might wonder if following Jesus is a waste of time and energy, that maybe the rest of the world sees something that you don't. Maybe they understand it better than you. That, that fear strikes a lot of Christians, and it has struck me before. But if you've ever wondered any of those things, I have news for you today. And that is that Jesus addressed those concerns. The founder of Christianity knew that he would be met with opposition. And he addresses them in this very chapter of Mark's gospel through what's called a parable. A parable is basically a story or an illustration that illustrates the truths about the kingdom of God to its listeners. A parable is a story or an illustration that reveals the truth about the kingdom of God to its listeners. And that's how Jesus teaches a great crowd of people in Mark 4, possibly the largest one yet. And what's interesting is chapter 4 of Mark's gospel is one of only two main teaching sections of Jesus. Uh, The author emphasizes that Jesus is teaching, but we don't actually hear the content of what he's teaching except for here and in one other chapter in the book. So as we prepare to hear from the very mouth of Jesus, the explanation for why people oppose his ministry, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer to prepare our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have told us that all scripture has been breathed out by you that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the people of God would be complete, equipped for every good work. So, Father, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to understanding your word this morning. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand the great mysteries revealed to us. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Listen as I read our passage from Mark 4. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given... The secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. 
And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. You can probably see how this section of verses is organized. Basically, there are three sections. In verses 1 through 9, Jesus simply teaches the parable. And then in 10 to 12, there's like an intermission. This actually happens most likely later, privately. But Mark inserts it in between uh, to explain the purpose of parables more generally, more broadly. And then in verses 13 through 20... Jesus explains this specific parable. So he teaches the parable, explains the purpose of all parables, and then describes the meaning of this specific parable because they don't seem to understand. Well, the main thing I want you to take away from this teaching of Jesus is that we should be like the good soil because good soil produces fruit. That's the main idea. We should be like the good soil because the good soil produces fruit. Now I should say that this is one of those texts that could be preached a number of different ways. There is much to glean from this passage. And for you today, I have three points. Basically, one theological summary, and then two application points specifically for our church that I think capture this main idea of the text. So first... This kind of overview, theological point, is the secret of the kingdom of God. Second, an application for us, sow the seed abundantly. And then third, plow the soil of your heart. So point one, the secret of the kingdom. What is it? I've always wanted to know the secret. Here it is. Maybe we'll get answers. Uh, Maybe that's what was going through your head when we read through it. Well, Jesus doesn't really actually say what the secret is, does he? He just says it's been given to the disciples. Well, the reason the secret is not described is because I think it's assumed. It's assumed to capture a summary of all of Jesus' teaching up to this point. So what what Jesus preached in his first sermon in chapter 1, verse 15, has not changed. He's not telling the disciples anything that they haven't heard already. And do you remember what he said in his first sermon, his first words of the book, chapter 1, verse 15? He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's very simply the good news of Jesus' arrival, 
of his person, the good news of his identity that he is the very Son of God, that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why his message is one of repentance and forgiveness as the successor of John the Baptist who came before him. Jesus was calling people to turn away from their sinful ways and to instead give their life to Jesus in order to be saved. You know, when we hear the word secret, um, we think that he's unlocking some kind of special wisdom here about the world or about God. It's like it's a magic word or some kind of riddle. But he's simply telling them that their response to the message he preached about Jesus is a great revelation of God. That word, translated for secret, uh, is a Greek word called musterion, which sounds like mystery. We, we, that's where we get it from. And it doesn't really convey the meaning of a riddle meant to confuse. Rather, it's used throughout the Bible to refer to the fulfillment of prophecy, a revealing or unfolding of, perhaps you could say enlightening, but really just further knowledge about the kingdom of God, knowledge that was previously veiled. Jesus is telling the disciples that they've been given the secret of the kingdom of God. It's another way of saying that they have heard and understood the message of God, the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. It's one of the ways that Jesus is saying that he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. His coming is God's plan for God's people. So Jesus is telling them that they are witnessing the next stage in redemption history, the coming of Israel's next and final king. In Jesus, we are given understanding of what the prophets hoped for and spoke of, what the people of God in the Old Testament looked forward to. I don't know if you've seen the movie National Treasure. Uh, it's a goose chase after a, a treasure hunt uh, hidden by the founding fathers of America. It's, it's kind of a ridiculous idea, but... There's a, there's a scene at the end where they finally reach the treasure. Spoiler alert. They find it. And when they get there, they're in this very dimly lit room because they only have their torches. And you see them gazing around in wonder as they look around and see gold mummies and lampstands. And they're amazed at the riches that are there. And then the main character looks over and he sees a platform that looks kind of strange. And he lowers his torch onto the platform. And when he touches it, there's fuel. And so it lights up in fire. And it goes along a path. And it reveals a huge storehouse the size of a football field. Illumining glorious treasures. Much more than they could imagine. Well, the Old Testament is like a room full of treasure dimly lit. That Christ, like a torch, illuminates. For all to see. This is how Paul speaks of the revelation of Christ in 2 Corinthians 3 when he speaks of the new covenant. Uh, he says that the coming of Christ is not like in the times of Moses when he goes up on Mount Sinai to speak with God. He comes down and the glory of God is shining on his face so bright that they have to veil his face to hear what he's saying so they're not blinded. Instead, the Apostle Paul says that those who recognize Christ are not like those who 
peered into the glory of God, shown in Moses' face through a veil, but that they have seen the glory of God unveiled in Christ, revealed. He says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. 2 Corinthians 3.16 So Jesus brings this unfolding of God's revelation to his people. So the mystery of the kingdom of God is the person of Jesus himself and the message that he preaches. But more precisely, the recognition and acceptance of Christ is the secret of the kingdom referenced here. Meaning the message Jesus preached about himself to the crowds was not any different from what he taught the disciples privately in this instance or explained to them. It's the same good news, but with different responses. And we'll get to those responses in a minute. What we should understand is that the recognition of Jesus for who he really is, is an act of God. That's why in Matthew 16, when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, brothers and sisters, what can we say except for that the gospel is a glorious gift from the Lord? We can celebrate receiving the same kingdom, the same secret of the kingdom, rather, of God that Jesus speaks of here to the disciples we have received today. If you've put your trust in Christ, that veil has been removed from your eyes. What was once a mystery or what was once hidden has been made plain to us. Every member of this church has at one point, at one point in their lives, heard the message of the gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God who came to save sinners, that he lived without sinning and died on the cross as a substitute for us so that the sinner could be justly forgiven. He rose from the grave three days later confirming the acceptance of his life as a sacrifice and defeating death. At some point, every Christian hears that message, recognizes its truthfulness and our need for a Savior, and believes in Jesus. That recognition and faith is a gift of God, and the message itself is the mystery of God that has been revealed. Just like we sang in Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, there was a great line that says, See the Father's plan unfold. That's the kind of mystery Jesus is speaking of here. So why is it that some people hear this exact same message that you heard, welcomed and received into your heart, and instead of receiving it with open arms, they turn away in disgust? Well, this parable answers that question. Jesus speaks about those outside in verses 11 and 12. And what Jesus says here, I think, will help us understand the entire parable better. So allow me to reread verses 11 and 12 and then explain them. Verse 11 says, And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. There's a clear contrast between those inside and those outside here, just as there was at the end of chapter 3. By those outside, he's just referring to people who don't see him for who he is, which is why things are in parables. 
And then he says something really difficult in verse 12. So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Let me just tell you that much has been written to try to understand and explain what that so that means in verse 12. Because it sounds like Jesus is saying for those outside, things are told in riddles or intentionally hidden in order to keep things from them so that they don't repent. So how can we reconcile that with the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only son? Or how do we reconcile it with 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, which says God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? Does he hide truth from some? Well, no. I don't think that's the answer. First, because there are times which Jesus speaks in parables, and the Pharisees know exactly what he means. uh, And it causes them to grow angry. Second, like I mentioned earlier, secret doesn't mean riddle, but revelation. It's not so much that God is withholding understanding from them that would otherwise lead them to repentance. It's rather that exposure to God's word reveals their resistance to it. Confrontation of the word of God reveals people's hardened hearts against him and sometimes causes them to harden their hearts even more which is exactly what God tells the prophet Isaiah will happen to him in his ministry. And the prophet Isaiah is who Jesus is quoting from in verse 12. Those verses come from Isaiah's call to ministry in Isaiah chapter 6. It's an amazing passage. I'd encourage you to read it later if you have the time. Isaiah sees the throne of God. And God asks who will go to his people to bring a message. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And he instructs him on what to say, what his ministry will be like. And what he says is namely that people will see but not perceive, will hear but not understand. And we've already seen that present in Jesus' ministry, haven't we? People have seen his miracles, yet they've not really understood Jesus' motives behind them. They've heard his teachings, but they've called him possessed by Satan. So what was true about Isaiah's ministry? That he would go and bring God's word to the people, and they would receive it with hard hearts, is true about Jesus' ministry 700 years later. Namely, that some people wouldn't believe it. If they did they would turn and be forgiven. That's what that lest means at the end of verse 12. It could be translated as otherwise. If they they didn't have hard hearts, otherwise they would turn and repent. Jesus is saying that their state of unbelief goes against their ability to accept Jesus. But Jesus here is not saying that God's word will harden soft and tender hearts. It's not as though there are repentant seekers of him whose hearts are hardened by God in the preaching of his word. It's rather those who are in rebellion against God are either softened when they hear God's word or they are hardened further in their rebellion. 
Everyone who hears the word of God has a response of some kind. And that's what Jesus articulates through the four different soils. Now just pause for a moment and think about this event. Picture Jesus sitting out on a boat. And uh, if you're like me and you get distracted with small details, uh, you might wonder how in the world could he sit in a boat on the water and could anyone hear him at all? Uh, That was the posture of teachers in the day. They would sit and everyone else would stand. Very different than what we do now. Well, I went down this rabbit trail and got distracted for a little bit. And I discovered that there is actually a place along the Sea of Galilee called the Sower's Cove, or the Cove of the Sower, uh, which many people think is where this event happened. And uh, if you look it up, you'll see why they think this. Uh, Basically, water levels lowered, and it revealed a number of docks along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And it's shaped in a way that the land circles an opening in the water, much like an amphitheater. And the land is, is above the water, And you could easily fit thousands of people on this land and surround almost like 180 degrees around the boat. And they've run these tests and shown that voice actually carries up to the back of the hill. Anyway, I'm not a huge uh, fan of naturalistic explanations. I think if God is healing crippled people or multiplying bread to feed thousands of people, he could cause people to hear Jesus' voice and his voice to project. But it's pretty cool. So you should look it up. Anyway, imagine Jesus is in the boat. And he's looking at the thousands of people along the shore. And he's teaching this parable. Knowing that each one of the soils is present before him. Jesus knew the hearts of those who taught, who he taught. And so he gives us an image of various responses to expect when we sow the word. First are those along the path, which Jesus says, don't even penetrate the surface. It's hard-packed soil, and instead Satan comes like a bird and sweeps them away. I'd say these are like the people today who don't even give the Bible or Jesus or Christianity the time of day. They've got no interest in it whatsoever and may even respond with hostility when you share the gospel with them. You know, I was reflecting on demonic activity when, when we went through the whole Beelzebul ordeal in chapter 3. And just a thought I had, Satan hardly needs to try in those situations because the seed is just on top of hard-packed soil. It doesn't seem like it's much work. So I think it's one of the reasons, perhaps... Demonic activity is less common in places like America and Europe where the average non-believer is just not quite as spiritually sensitive as in other countries where other religions are practiced more widely. Well, that's the first soil. The second soil are those of the rocky ground, which Jesus says actually springs up, but the result is very short-lived. Jesus says because the, the word has no root, in the soil. The sun scorches it, which he says means when tribulation or persecution arises. These are like fair weather Christians. And as quickly as they show fruit, they fall away. 
This is why it's good for us to observe the fruit of someone who professes faith, uh, especially in children. We should rejoice when anyone professes faith, but we want to be sure that they understand and have counted the cost of Christianity. Just like God's word either hardens or softens one's heart, so trials and hardship can either harden people towards God or cause them to cling even tighter to him. It's also one of the reasons why Paul tells Timothy not to appoint recent converts as elders in 1 Timothy 3.6. He says, Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. That's the rocky soil. Next soil is the thorns, which is the most damaging and perhaps the most discouraging for many Christians. Because they appear to show all of the signs of growth and genuine faith until they simply decide they want something more. They crave the world, they love themselves more than Jesus, or they decide Jesus is just not worth the sacrifice. So friends, what does this mean for us? Two points of application for this parable. And this is point two. Sow the seed abundantly. You may have been reading through this text and thought to yourself, what an incompetent sower. What is this guy doing? Sowing all over the path and rocky soil and thorns. Why doesn't he just sow everything over the good soil that he knows is going to produce grain? Isn't that going to be a waste of his seed? Well, what's interesting is the sower is not actually the primary focus of this parable. Uh, I know that probably your Bibles has this titled the parable of the sower, and I've been calling it the parable of the soils so far. Uh, that's a small disagreement I have with the ESV translation committee. Um, but I love their work. It's neither here nor there. The sower is only mentioned once in each telling of the parable. And in this instance, Jesus is obviously the sower, preaching great crowds, because he's preaching the word. But he wants his listeners to understand that anyone who's preaching the word is considered a sower. We know that later on, Jesus is going to commission the 12 disciples to go out and do likewise, and he prepares them for opposition then. And then we know after Jesus' resurrection, his last message to those on earth, when he appears to them, is to make disciples of all nations. And I just want to quickly point out that the seed, we shouldn't overlook, is a word. And that word is a message. It's a cohesive message, communicated and received. It's not good deeds or your testimony. It's the message of salvation. Remember that Paul says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. So we should sow abundantly. We should also sow non-discriminately. It's not the placement of the seed that should concern us. It's simply getting the seed out there. In point one, we talked about how the word has multiple purposes. By quoting Isaiah, Jesus shows that his preaching serves the purpose not only in bringing people to repentance, but also condemning them to judgment as they harden in their hearts. But remember what the Lord said to Isaiah later in his ministry, in chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. Isaiah asked him 
in the account that Jesus quoted, he asked him how long he was to preach this message that he knew would be rejected. And God's answer to him was basically, until judgment is complete. Well, later in Isaiah's ministry, chapter 55, 10 and 11, God says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We should not shy away from the sovereignty of God over human hearts because it's his sovereignty alone that is able to soften them. The Puritans had a phrase that I think goes well with this parable. What they said was the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Some people hear the very same message that softened your heart and believe, and others reject it. I don't know about you, but when I share the gospel with someone, and uh, they're frustrated or they're not interested, or perhaps they're even angry and hostile, I can easily get discouraged. Uh, And there's a godly concern and love for the souls of others that should bring us sorrow. I think that's appropriate. But at the same time, the parable of the soils teaches us that we shouldn't be surprised if these responses are the ones that we get from people when we share the gospel. In fact, we should expect them. If Jesus got these responses himself, why should we get anything different? And if opposition never comes to you when you share the gospel, I wonder if you're actually sharing the gospel or just telling them that God loves them. But people need to feel the weight of their sin, to understand and recognize their need of forgiveness. Otherwise, they won't see the need for a Savior. They need to count the cost before they can express true faith. It's only His power that enables people to feel conviction of their sin and a need for forgiveness. And if you know this to be true in your heart today, but you've not trusted in Christ... Don't wait any longer. Soils can change. And this parable was given to spur the disciples to be like the good soil. So don't wait and allow time to harden your heart against God. Soils can change. And we should sow abundantly not only because they can change, but because we don't know what kind of soil we are sowing on. We often make the mistake of thinking that we do, though, don't we? I wonder what kind of soil the disciples would have thought that Paul was when he stood by the stoning of Stephen, giving approval for it. They had no way of knowing he would eventually be converted and become the greatest missionary of the world. Or what about Peter at the time of Christ's death? I would have assumed he was like the soil on rocky ground. Because he cowered in front of a little girl when she recognized him as a follower of Jesus. But what about Judas, who is counted among the twelve at first, but later chooses silver coins over the Savior he betrayed to the Romans? We are poor judges of soil, but the Lord alone knows the hearts of man, and the creator of the soil 
can soften the hardest of hearts. So we should sow abundantly, and we should sow non-discriminately. The Apostle Paul says that neither he that sows or he that waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. So brothers and sisters, our priority and our prerogative is to sow the word and to pray for growth. The Lord doesn't always show us the fruit of our labor. So we must sow in good faith that the word's going to accomplish what it's set out to do. That he will do as he's promised. One of my favorite quotes is from a man named Charles Bridges who wrote a book called The Christian Ministry. And he says, The seed may lay under the ground until we do, and then spring up. One real-life example of this was a man by the name of Luke Short. And here's what one author writes about his testimony. Luke Short was a farmer in New England who attained his hundredth year in exceptional vigor. He was a hundred years old, though without having sought peace with God. One day, as he sat in his fields reflecting upon his long life, he recalled a sermon he had heard in Dartmouth as a boy before he sailed to America. The horror of dying under the curse of God was impressed upon him as he meditated on the words he had heard so long ago. And he was converted to Christ at that moment. Eighty-five years after hearing John Flavel preach. You never know what the Lord will do with the seed you sow. Flavel had probably been dead for decades at that point. Second application, final point. Plow the soil of your heart. This is the primary purpose, I think, of Jesus giving this parable and explaining it to the disciples. And that purpose can be seen in verse 9, where Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what he means is that if you understand this message, then do something about it. Another way to say it is, He who has ears to hear, give heed. Jesus is not just describing the various responses of people to the gospel. He's doing that. But he's also instructing those around him to be like the good soil. He's instructing the disciples to heed the word of God so that their faith would be genuine. So for us today, we should be plowing the soil of our hearts so that God's word puts roots down within us. And so we are not scorched by tribulation or taken captive by our desires. In this life, you probably know that you're going to experience the heat of a scorching sun. You're going to feel the persecution or the draw of fleshly desires, the deceit of money. But the difference between those whose faith is genuine and those who fall away is the soil of the heart and, re- and receptivity of the word. Nobody is saved by making a mere outward profession of faith. Anyone can do that. People are saved by the word of God taking root in their hearts, which then results in an ongoing profession of faith. So we should examine our hearts, not just our actions. We want to be a people who are eager to hear the word of God, who cling to it when things are hard, and to be like the disciples who seek to understand and wrestle with the truths of God. 
Another point of application is to work for spiritual growth in your life. God's sovereignty in giving growth should not de-incentivize us. If anything, it should give us confidence since godliness is accomplished by His power and not ours. If it was ours, we might as well quit. But the Holy Spirit helps us. You know, in the Bible, God's sovereignty is mentioned a number of times. But it's always mentioned in order to emphasize His power and our need. And it's never mentioned to remove the responsibility of the God-fearing person. It's always mentioned in order to emphasize His power and our need and never mentioned to remove the responsibility of the God-fearing person. Mark's Gospel regularly emphasizes the size of Jesus' ministry, these great crowds, and he contrasts them with a number of disciples or those who show true faith. And that theme is present here in this parable as well. So treat it as a sobering warning that three out of four of the soils, or 75% of the seed that is sown, shows visible growth at first. But in reality, only one of the soils actually produces grain. This is not a prophecy on numbers. Uh, It doesn't mean that 25% of this room is going to prove to have genuine faith. Uh, I pray that if we have meaningful membership and we're careful about our profession of faith as a church, then we can present every member of this church before the throne of God and give an account and praise the Lord for the growth that was in the hearts of each one of you. But remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. But brothers and sisters, at the same time, don't be intimidated that only one of these soils lasts because what what does Jesus say about the good soil? The seed that falls on the good soil in due time produces fruit. Thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Just so you know, in the ancient world, a, a crop or a harvest was seen as successful if seed produced tenfold what was sown. So how rich will the harvest of the kingdom of God be when seed sown on good soil is reproducing 30 and 60 and 100 times over? Jesus is going to continue to teach on the kingdom of God in the next few parables. And uh, by the way, if you didn't know this on our bulletin, on the very back, it'll have the upcoming sermon text written there so you can read ahead to study But in conclusion, the kingdom of God is where seed grows in good soil. God's plan for increasing the size of his kingdom is by sowing seeds abundantly and by multiplying the fruit of good soil. As Christians, we should expect opposition. Many, if not most, will not listen. But to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. So be like the good soil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as sinners bought by the blood of Jesus.
And we rejoice in the great mystery revealed in your Son, who ushered the kingdom of God with his arrival, and who sets the captives free. Our prayer this morning is that you would plow our hearts to be like rich soil for your word, that it would take root in our lives and bring forth fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. We ask that you would give us the faith to believe your promises and trust in your sovereign power over the hearts of men and women as we sow the word abundantly in this life. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.